And in my view, the route forward or the answer forward is, is through technology, right? We still need to be able to meet the needs of feeding the planet, um, but we need to do so in a way that acknowledges what we now know about the impacts um, that ag can have on the planet. Welcome to Proptastic, the Interplant Podcast, where your host, Shelley Aronoff, explores the global future of agriculture and food. Dana Worth, Senior Vice President of Commercial for vertical farming company Plenty and former Impossible Foods VP, joins us this week to talk about indoor farming and connecting consumers to the future of agriculture. Welcome to Proptastic, the podcast by Interplant. Today, we have with us Dana Worth, who I've known for I don't know, over 12 years now, I think. Um, Dana, thank you for being with us. It's great to be here, Shelley. Thanks for having me. So to get started, please, why don't you start by sharing how you got into agriculture and your experience there? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, right now I'm leading our commercial team, meaning sales and marketing here at Plenty Unlimited, which is an indoor farm that grows uh, leafy greens, uh, strawberries, tomatoes, all sorts of good stuff inside completely under LEDs uh, in a truly vertical architecture. Uh, imagine kind of big telephone poles with plant sites coming out of them. And we can talk a little bit more about that as we go. But uh, actually, my first foray into agriculture was uh, about seven years ago uh, when I joined Impossible Foods. So I joined Impossible Foods back in 2015 when it was uh, mostly an R&D lab. My first day on the job, I think there was probably 70 scientists and uh, or 70 people and 65 of them were scientists. So quite, quite a heavy R&D environment, uh, which I absolutely loved. Uh, I was early on on the commercial team there where I uh, helped lead our launch in 2016 uh, of the Impossible Burger uh, with David Chang in New York, uh, and then went on to lead our uh, commercial teams there, and then eventually the deals with Burger King and Starbucks. Still very happy to say today that both the Impossible Whopper and the Impossible Breakfast Sandwich are, are at Burger King and Starbucks, and, uh, and I, had, I had a Starbucks sandwich just the other day. Prior to that, I um, actually met Shelly out here in business school, and, and prior to that, I was a... Uh, a consultant, um, but I really enjoyed my journey to the to the ag world. I've always been mission driven, and I can't imagine a better place to be. You know, in my view, agriculture, food, and agriculture is really the closest thing we have to a silver bullet to solve so many of the problems uh, that we face. There's seven billion or so consumers uh, who participate in the food and ag system daily. There's another billion or two billion producers who produce into that system daily. I can't think of a single other system, not the energy system, not the healthcare system, not the transportation system, not the financial system that has that level of engagement from everyone, everyone on the planet. So, so was yeah. that the reason you got into agriculture to start? Was it? It is. Yeah. It's, I've, I've always been fascinated by problems that impact every human being on the planet. Um, my idea of change, and this is just my idea, no, no judgment to others, but my idea of change is being able to take large amounts of people up the curve, uh, however you want to define that, up the progress mm -hmm. curve. And that's, that's more exciting to me than kind of refining the degree of perfection it's, is actually to how can we bring the most number of people uh, along the curve and in agriculture really, you know, I think is the system that allows us to, to do that. And it's sort of hiding in plain sight, you know, certainly here in the Bay area, there aren't as many people who are focused on food and ag. And yet here is a system that has you know, the ability to impact billions of people is vitally important to how we think about the, uh, the climate and the future. Yeah of the planet and, um, and really has until really the last few years, I think been really underinvested in from a, uh, from an innovation standpoint. Yeah. It does seem like, uh, recently there's been a boom, right. Over the last maybe couple of years, but before that very little activity when it comes to innovation, Silicon Valley and then agriculture. 
Yeah, certainly in Silicon Valley. I mean, obviously, there's been incredible agriculture innovations around the world over the last several decades, but of the kind, um, the kind of capital flowing in that you see now with the merging of of software, hardware, and biology, I think is is a really fascinating place to be. Yeah, I agree. So, what do you think are the main challenges with our current food system? No man. <laughs> Small question. <laughs> we'll start with the problems, then we'll go into the solutions. You know. Yeah, I think um, if I had to summarize the challenges, I think that they they are the flip side of this being such a all important system, right? So many things that are are or once what were once good about the food system have become problematic as they've had to scale to 7 billion consumers and 2 billion producers. So things that, you know, animal agriculture is a perfect example, right? Animal agriculture 150 or 200 years ago was not a huge problem because we hadn't industrialized it in the way that we, we have today. Um, now, as you scale it up to feed the number of people we've tried to feed, the second order consequences around climate have become really, really apparent. And that's not to say um, that I'm against, and I don't, I don't want to confuse this. It's, it's not being against kind of industrialization or the progress aspect of that. We've, we've fed billions of people because of that, but it, but that is also the root of many of the challenges we face now. And, and in my view, the route forward or the answer forward is, is through technology, right? We still need to be able to meet the needs of feeding the planet, um, but we need to do so in a way that acknowledges what we now know about the impacts that ag can have on the planet. So uh, if I had to pick one one theme, it's you know as we've scaled everything up, we've created some second order consequences that we're you know, understanding more fully understanding now, and and we need to address. That's a really interesting angle because it, it's true. For so long, the focus was always just to create enough food, right? To grow enough food for people not to not to starve mostly. And then in the last I don't know seventy years, we figured out how to create enough food for most of the world. And now we have the the flip side of the problem, which which I agree with, which is what happens as we scale this. Absolutely agree. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about vertical farming. As someone who's very deep in it, I, I just bought my uh, first plenty arugula box in the supermarket a week ago, so I feel much more connected to it right now. But uh, tell me, how do you see? Kind of maybe we can start with the challenges, the opportunities, and then how do you see this feeding into the larger system? Because I I do think. Some of the world will, some of the farming will say traditional farming. Some will move into vertical farming. Do you have an idea of how that plays out? Yeah, that, that's right. I think um, there's both a push and a pull on the move to you know, the desire to move farming indoors. So there's a consumer pull, which even though most consumers aren't aware of what it means to be to farm indoor to farm vertically, they're aware of some of the benefits, and they certainly feel strongly about the benefits we can bring. So if you think about the benefits, that's you know, a clean product. So for example, the plenty, that plenty of arugula you just bought is no need to wash. It's never been, it doesn't have anything to wash off, right? It's It's been grown completely indoors in a clean environment. No pesticides, right? Because there's no pests to address. So there's no need for pesticide. Those are two you know, huge value propositions to consumers. Then layer on top of that, the uh, the flavor that we can create. So, you know, it's it kind of, it should be intuitive, right? The more uh, ways you can control the growing environment, the more things you can do with plants. So that arugula actually is a great example. We can dial up how spicy or mild arugula is simply by changing the growing environment, right? Even with a, with a, for a given cultivar, we can change how it expresses those compounds based on the growing environment. So you can imagine a world where we start doing that with many different types of crops, even using the same set of genetics, uh, being able to express uh, those genetics in a way 
uh, that changes the consumer experience. So that's really exciting for me. And then from the from the push side, meaning the retailer or the the um, the food service operator side, you know, they are dealing with many challenges right now, as as you can imagine. One, of course, is supply chain, right, and and assurance of their supply. So everyone everywhere, obviously not just in in the produce space, but especially in the produce space, is is dealing with inability to get their hands on you know the right product in the right place at the right time. That's certainly true now, but it was true before due to climate pressures, right? We, you know, are just one bad fire season or, or one bad weather event from, you know, really devastating large parts of the, of the growing environment uh, here in California and beyond. Um, there's also obviously the, the threat of recalls and the inconsistency of the quality of the product um, on a seasonal basis. And so growing indoors allows us to address all of those aspects, not only provide, um, the perfect weather conditions 365 days a year, thus reducing the uh, the variability, seasonal variability, also obviously protecting from, from weather events. But you know, on the consumer side, really delivering something that's uh, a better quality product uh, going forward. You know, and I say quality both on, on the sensory standpoint, but also um, from the cleanliness standpoint. So that's the, that's what I think the promise of it is. Um, and it's also the you know the ability to grow in more places, right? We're we're largely running out of the Mediterranean growing zones where we grow a lot of fruits and vegetables. And, and this gives us an opportunity to, to create, create new farmland in some ways. So is the focus then more on the high value crops? Certainly high value crops are a good place to, to start, right? Because the, um, as this, you know, this is a technology, right? And it, and it follows a technology cost curve, which is exciting in many ways, right? It's exciting because the agriculture has not had a chance to benefit from technology cost curves in some time. So we are, we're on that curve and at the beginning of that curve, it's, it's steep, right? And then, and then it, or the whole curve is steep and at the beginning it costs are higher. And as, as you go and as you scale, they come down. So certainly high value crops are a good place to start, but they're also crops that consumers, you know, feel strongly about their flavor, which allows the advantages that we have to, to really stand out. That being said, I think you'll see more and more crops move indoors over time. There'll be, certainly this will be a complement or an addition to field farming for some time, but but that also depends on what what happens in the field, right? As I said, depending on on how weather events play out, um, the cost of, of field farming uh, is not static either, right? It's it's going up uh, as we go forward. So something you said made me curious. Um, you're talking about the novel applications, essentially, of using the controlled environment to enhance uh, something. Can you speak of some of the more exciting ideas that you came by or even doing already? Yeah, I think you know there's there's a whole bunch of promise here, and I don't want to. You know, promise things that aren't aren't possible yet. But the you know, the arugula is a good example where we can tone it up up or down. There's all sorts of ideas, obviously, you can imagine around pharmaceuticals and around you know food as medicine applications. And I think that's really just at the beginning of its of its journey. And you know, something that as as we and others refine our platforms, you know, I'm really excited to dive into. I'm, I think this actually fits into this, uh, and this is a really strange question, but I've been asking it for a while. I think it's an interesting concept. What does sustainability mean to you? And basically, how do you define it? I think it's something that comes up all the time for us. And what does sustainability mean? Is it cost sustainability? Is it environmental? Is it pesticides, the nitrogen, and so on? Do you have an idea on this or just in, in general an opinion on, on the whole fragmentation of sustainability? Yeah, for me, it means making sure there's a planet that my daughter wants to live on. And that has a few elements to it. Obviously that's the climate and, and the environment, but it's also biodiversity, right? Which feeds our ecosystems. It's the health, right? Which is where the pesticide piece comes into this. If we are degrading both our, our planet and the people who live here um, for the sake of the present, 
that is that's selfish, right? That's not investing in in the future for my daughter. And so to me, that it all kind of sums up into that having, you know, having the right cost, the right scalability, the right products, those are all means to that end, right? It's hard to achieve true sustainability or achieve true impact if you're playing at a small scale. So for me, it's always been having making a contribution, but making it at a sufficient enough scale that you can really really create change. And, and that's why, for example, you know, we pursued at Impossible, we pursued a deal with Burger King, we pursued a deal with Starbucks. Those are the places where uh, Americans eat and drink. And if you mm-hmm. want to change the food system, uh, you need to you need to be there, right? You need to run on those rails because yeah. that's where people go. Yeah, I agree. I always uh, joke that I want Interfund to be the climate technology that's adopted on 95% of acres because yeah. the more acres, the more impact, right? That's right. So I have a, another question that came to mind about specifically about the indoor farming. Um, does this change the definition of a farmer? Do you believe when you're going to transfer into this environment, which is very different, I would say, than what the traditional farmer was like? Or do you think the same skill sets can then be utilized in this new industry? Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess it depends on what your definition of a, of a farmer is to begin with. <laughs> right. um, but the way that I think of it is, you know, a farm, right, is a, at its, its most basic level, is a, um, a platform, right? A system that takes in light and energy and nutrients and climate temperature, et cetera, right? And, tr- and transforms that into edible products. And um, that's exactly what we do, right? Our light comes from a different place. Our nutrients are the same nutrients. Um, and we're, we're transforming that into edible, usable product. And in that sense, you know, we have farms. That being said, of course, these farms are very, you know, look very different from, from field farms. And some of the skill sets are the same. Some of them are different. So we have growers, many of whom you know, were growers in the field before uh, or in greenhouses before. So we certainly draw on some of the traditional industry, but we also have software engineers right, and lighting engineers. Um, so disciplines that you probably wouldn't see, I definitely wouldn't see in a field farm. I guess it depends what your definition is, um, but there's... I certainly know the, the folks who I work with consider themselves to be farmers, and many of whom have you know have worked at, for quite a quite a long time in the traditional agriculture industry as well. I guess to the question of then, how do you see the evolution of the future farm? I usually um, ask this from people that deep into the traditional farming, but I don't think it changes that much here. Yeah, I think let's say 10, 20 years into the future. I think what's exciting is you know the ability to control more and more of the inputs and. The way that, um, you know, if you talk to our engineers, the way they would talk about it is you obviously, this field farming looks like this simple system, right? You plant and, you know, plant uh, seeds and put them in the ground and give them water and nutrients and the sun and they grow. That being said, it's in, in many ways, it's a very complicated system because of the unpredictability of the inputs, right? The, uh, your main input, the sun is changing day to day by, you know, 50, 60, hundred percent. And in some ways, in that sense, our, our system is easier to manage, right? It's a, um, certainly has a lot of parts to it, but it, it has control, right? Our lights um, are consistent during 65 days a year. We can tune the day length to be the day length that is most optimal for the crop. And so what I, what I get excited about is kind of the things that we can't even imagine yet because we're just on the, the, the very beginning stages of this. So for example, if you think of the farm as an energy system, and if you think about energy prices declining over time, you know, can we just put more and more energy into the system to, to grow faster and faster. You know, are there ways that we can change how we package our product because we're growing and packaging in the same place, as opposed to, you know, picking in the field and having to use a pack house. There's a lot of things that kind of knock on benefits that come out of the original idea 
I think have a potential to have a really positive impact uh, on farming. Yeah, I've come across several kind of different applications that I found interesting over the years. One is uh, the essentially the indoor farming within the supermarkets, or if you flip that, just having both at the same place, right? Which makes a ton of sense. Another one is uh, the idea of, of essentially building it into the infrastructure of new buildings, which I don't know if that's even something that's on the trajectory, but I've seen some Japanese conglomerates thinking about that. And again, it seems kind of cool that you'd go home and you maybe are growing some produce on the walls of your of your building and it's incredibly efficient, but I don't know how far in the future all of that is. Yeah, I think what's what's really great, and this is this is my opinion about all this ag tech innovation in general, which is, you know, the problem is so big, right? Coming back to this system that feeds 7 billion people and has dramatic, right now, dramatically bad impacts on the environment, that we need tons of people focused on this. We need tons of companies focused on this. And like any set of innovations, some some will fail, some will be you know wildly successful. Um, but my approach has been sort of a big tent approach of wanting to support as many entrepreneurs as possible in the space, you know, getting as many people focused on this problem. Because again, as I, as I mentioned before, I think it's an area that's been underinvested in, not just in terms of capital, but also um, in terms of people, right? Like the this mm-hmm. is this dramatically important project um, and we need the best minds in the world working on it. So whether it's, you know, freight farms or grocery store farms or bigger scale or, you know, our system or another system, I just want to, I want lots of money and brains focused on this because it's, you know, pretty important to the future of the planet. Yeah, I agree. It, it seems like the industry is moving right now from an investment perspective here. And a lot of people tend to call it a bubble, but I think at the end of the day, it just means that climate and ag is now important and people are noticing it. It's always been, but obviously now the focus is here. And like you said, a lot will fail, but some will succeed and change the world that we live in. So it's incredibly important. That's right. And I huh. think, you know, it, you can think of it as a bubble, but if you come back again and reframe it as what other system on the planet impacts so many people on a daily basis, uh, I, that's always, that's changed how I think about it to saying, well, actually, I don't think it's a bubble. I think we're still on the ascendancy. Right. This is not going to not be a priority for us going forward. That's right. So you've obviously been um, an executive at two very important companies in the space, both uh, Plenty and, and Impossible. What were maybe some of the learnings you can share from uh, experiences there? And what is some advice for, for potential founders out there or people that are interested in the space? Yeah, I think um, it's so important to start to know why you exist, right? To start with a mission. And I think this genre, this uh, industry really opens itself up to that, right? Because of the the massive impact that the system has on people, it's easy to connect the connect work to, to impact, but it's not always you know, articulated in that way. And to me, that's always, that's, that's super important. If you don't know why you exist or put the other way, sometimes you think about it, about it as what would have to be true for you to shut the company down? You know, what's the day that you're, that you would just say, yep, we're done, right? We achieved the thing we want to achieve. It might be far off in the future, but you know, that's, that's how I think about it. Companies shouldn't be around, in my opinion, just to perpetuate themselves. They should be around to achieve a mission or a goal. And if you can be clear about that, you can define a lot of your business strategy around that, right? That helps define what products you make on what timeline, um, what that product mix looks like. It helps define who you hire and uh, what you want them to care about. It helps you define your marketing and how you talk to consumers and customers. And you know, the companies that that do this best, I think, find that you know it impacts every part of their company. The companies that struggle with this oftentimes find themselves swirling a little bit about 
you know, well, how do we pitch this to a customer? Or how do we talk to our employees about this? And so I think that's really first and foremost is you got to start with with what you stand for and and build everything off that. Yeah, I, I agree about that. Uh, mission driven is uh, it also helps to find the right people that want to work with you, right? Because you want to create that that environment of people that are striving towards the same goal. Absolutely, and I would you know add to that that once you have established the mission, you know finding those people who are truly passionate about the journey you're on. I know passion is an overused word, but what that actually means in hiring is you know finding people who want to be on that stage of the journey. I think is very important, and it's it's um kind of neither good nor bad, right? Like there are different people who like different different parts of company company life cycles, but you know mm-hmm. I always try to be very clear with candidates about where we are in our life cycle because I've seen the flip side of that, which is there are people who say, "Great, I love you know I know what the mission is, and I'm I'm glad that the strategy changes every day because we get new information like that that keeps me excited." And then there are people who say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa this seems like things are changing all the time." Um, I, I don't get energized by that. And, you know, clearly, especially in, you know, relatively early stages of a company, yeah, finding the former versus the latter is very important. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, uh, the, the, you described in the beginning, it definitely sounds like the, the early stage and you gotta go with it as things uh, change all the time. But it's also interesting what you said that the, what is the thing that you exist to do that if you, if you achieve that, you'd close the company. But then you don't ever want to close the company, right? So then maybe the mission has to grow in order for things to continue, right? Like there needs to be some more to do. No, I think there's you know? a, uh, I think they're like really well articulated mission. There is a day where you would close it down, right? Where you've, you, and you can obviously move on to another mission or another project, but I think having that clarity of purpose. And again, that, it might be that it's 20, 30 years, 40 years before you can achieve it. Um, but having that clarity of purpose, I think is, is really, um, really important. Sometimes I think about it as being a, you know, a first term senator versus a second term senator. The first term mm-hmm. senator is just very focused on re-election and that's the goal versus the second term senator, you know, can be focused on on her the, her reason for being, right? And uh that's kind of, you know, I want companies to be second term senators. No, I like it. I really like it. It's true. Well, thank you Dana. This has been great and thank you for being with us today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me, Shelley. And that's our show for this episode. Thank you again to Dana Worth from Plenty Ag for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter account at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening.